that you can't expect people to tend to the earth who can't tend to each other. This isn't like a, a, a category or a professional thing. This has to do with a complete way of seeing life. Hello and welcome to Talk of Today, where we explore developments in science, technology, and society, and what they could mean for the future. I'm your host, Sam Barton. Today's episode is a bit unlike the rest. Rather than being one of my more standard interviews, where I ask somewhat scripted questions and do my utmost best to not derail the conversation entirely with my impulsivity, my conversation with Nora Bateson you're about to hear ended up being a completely spontaneous dance of words, whose ebbs and flows were off script, and I think wonderfully reflects just what the scope of her work is about. I didn't end up asking any of the questions I had in mind, not explicitly anyway, as it seemed as though it would have been rather jarring and would have brought to an end what I thought at least to be a very interesting, fluid coming together of strangers. So to give some context to the conversation, I'll just tell you uh, a little bit about Nora and her work. I highly recommend reading some of her work and listening to some other interviews she's done because she brings a deeply human and warm approach to the discussion and exploration of the complexity of our world. Nora Bateson is an award-winning filmmaker, writer, and educator, and is president of the International Bateson Institute, an organization that integrates the sciences, arts, and professional knowledge to create a qualitative inquiry of the integration of life. Her work is focused on the innumerable relationships that define our world and who we are, understanding the role that perception and context plays in our interactions. Her work brings the fields of biology, cognition, art, anthropology, psychology, and information technology together into a study of the patterns in the ecology of living systems. In a world mired in inconceivable, constantly evolving complexity that we must act within, perhaps even radically, the ability to shift the frames through which we view the world is critical. This is a part of what Nora's trans-contextual research and approach is about, asking how can we create a context in which to study contexts, to understand and familiarize ourselves with the ways in which multiple contexts interrelate. She writes, Recognizing that complex systems never exist in just one context but many, the relational processes that occur in each context are different, but they are also not isolatable from one another. A tree, for example, is in relationship to the microbacteria in the soil, the other trees around it, the shadows, wind, water flows, populations of insects in its bark, the birds, human interaction, its own genetic history, and so on. Each of these contexts is comprised of a realm of interaction through which the tree is in ongoing formation. This approach has given rise to a category of information specifically dedicated to the description of contextual relational interaction which Nora calls warm data. In her piece, Preparing for a Confusing Future Complexity, Warm Data and Education, Nora writes, Utilizing information obtained through a subject's removal from context and frozen in time can create error when working with complex systems. Warm data presents another order of exploration in the process of discerning vital contextual interrelationships and other species of information. So hopefully... All of that gives some added context uh, to our discussion, where we cover ineffability, perception, and the baggage of language, why the changes we need begin with the changing of our relationships with ourselves and each other, how COVID has shown us the perils of the incessant seeking of efficiency, and the need to engage with the world with humility. 
Listening to this conversation and some of my more recent interviews, I've noticed how frequently I tend to bring up similar topics. Uh, so forgive me if the, re if the repetition is becoming too much. Um, I guess we can all see what's uh, going on within my subconscious and what is also front of mind. As always, uh, you can find show notes for this podcast on my website at samhbarton.com slash podcast. And there you'll find links to things that we discussed in this episode, um, as well as links to uh, Nora on social media and a lot of her work. If you'd like to keep up to date with uh, the podcast and other developments I've got cooking, um, please consider subscribing to my newsletter, which you can do on my website, or follow me on Twitter at Sam H. Barton. And without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Nora Bateson. Nora, thank you very much for, for being here. It's a, it's a pleasure and a privilege. Um, I came across your work... Uh, relatively recently and you know your work and um the work of your family and i think it's quite a travesty um that it took so long for me to actually uh be gifted this new perspective uh let's say um and it's a perspective that i think um the world at large is sorely lacking um so you have quite an interesting what i'd say uh, an intellectual history and one that uh lives or the one that you live it's it, 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 it's come through your uh your family so could you just talk to me about um the work of uh I, I guess how you i mean obviously how you came to be but um you know your father and your grandfather and the the um the ideas that have kind of grounded or shaped um your life and uh your work well i think the the main thing there's all sorts of, you know, existing information out there about that and about their work. So I won't, I won't be too repetitive. Um, but the main thing is that uh, both my grandfather, who was working in biology and botany, he, he actually coined the term genetics, and my father, uh, who's... Depending on where you sit, he's sometimes best known as an anthropologist or sometimes best known as a working in family therapy or sometimes best known in, in uh, information and cybernetics uh, systems theory. It depends on who you ask and what their interests are. Uh, but the, the, there's a couple of things that are underlying this. And I'd, I'd like to just skip to that instead of listing their accomplishments. Of course. And their yeah, yeah, of course, of course. Um, and, and that something is, um, that something is described maybe best as uh, they, they, were working on continuing to increase the possibility for perception and description of the kind of relational patterns and processes that form the interdependencies of living systems. Okay, so think of it like 
muscles and tendons and veins and blood and different kinds of cells and the way all these sorts of things are moving and and holding and in deep relational process in your own body, for example. But that's also true. The same metaphor could be used to think about a family or a forest or a culture or right. So what they were looking at was not necessarily the things, but the um the ways in which the multiple processes between the things, those relational processes between organisms, between organs, between, between the different structures, um, learn, change, move, exist, continue, discontinue, combine, recombine, uh, and I'm 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 wanting to kind of describe this in a way that is kind of beyond the notion of interconnectedness. Um, so I'm pushing on that in in this description right now that we're we're in you and me, Sam, because I I want to um, I want to be careful. Okay, so this is the other part about what it is that's running through my family is that there's caution. And, and that, that caution is a caution that's informed by the, um, the trickery of the kind of ways in which existing patterns of language, educational, um, framings, uh, institutional framings, cultural framings, the ways in which those kinds of um, ways of perceiving can, can catch you and, and actually prohibit the depth and the integrity of a kind of perceiving that is, um, well, is at least aware of the paradox, right? So we have to describe things in language because language is what we have. But describing things in language turns those things into what language can describe. And there you have it. It's an issue. You know, when you wake up sometimes in the morning and someone says to you, you know, what did you dream? Or you try to explain a dream that you had. And somehow it's like outside language. You can't quite find words for it because there's things that you can, you can know, you can sense, but you can't really describe them because the description would be too singular where multiple things happen at once in a dream and someone is more than one someone's at a time. And who was it? Well, it was this person plus that person plus this, but somehow that's not who they were because they weren't any, or any of those people, right? So you get into this, um, 
the issues of the relationship between perception and description and how to uh, how to maintain a rigor there and um, and also a kind of integrity because it's so easy to say things in ways that people will already be familiar with. But if you say things in ways that everyone's already familiar with, then they bring their familiar thinking patterns into the thing that you're saying. And it becomes very difficult to perceive new things there. Um, yeah. So those are the two big pieces. One is this appreciation and, and inquiry, curiosity, and care for these kind of living, changing relational processes. The other is what's in the description of them and this, um, I mean, it's kind of intimidating if you want to know the truth. The, and you probably noticed um, reading some of Gregory's work or even some of mine that the languaging is different. And the languaging is different for a reason. And I, I've just illustrated some of that. But it, my dad's work, when you read it now, 50 years later, um, you can tell that he was so careful with each word he put on the page. Is this going to, what baggage does this phrase, this word, this semantic carry? Do we really want to bring that baggage into this idea? And so I guess for me, um, you know, in my work and the whole sort of coming up with new words like semantic, and actually my dad and my granddad came up with new words, right? So this is not an accident. Um, my father coined the term schismogenesis. Um, like I said, William coined genetics. I have come up with a couple of new words myself, but but this is because of this relationship to description. And the need to be able to talk about something to um, to get it into our culture, our mutual knowing, right? So one of the things about living systems, am I going on too long? Do you want to no, dive no, in? No, 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 speakers. Okay. Yeah, no, no, just uh, continue. I'll, I'll maybe ask some clarifying questions if need be. All right, but I think this is a really interesting piece because here's the thing, is that it would be nice to think that you know and I know and as individuals, we are these um, vessels of knowing and experience and so on and so forth. And in a sense, we are. Okay, there's no denying that. But... What we are also is kind of like um, conductors, uh, not in the sense of a symphony, but in the sense of electricity. C kind of, we, we, we're conducing uh, cultural 
understanding, mutual understanding and learning. And, and that begins to create a, a, a kind of a landscape of assumptions, of expectations, of, of framings, of, of familiarities, of, of um, definitions that we live in. And the thing is, we don't live in it alone. The ideas of what it is that our life, what, what is life, right? What does it mean to be, um, to be Sam? What does it mean to be male? What does it mean to be female? What does it mean to be human? What does it mean to be um, Australian or American? What does it mean to be, you know... 34 or what does it mean to be 52 and what does it mean to be a grandmother or a mother or a child or a or a, uh, a criminal or a president like all of these things these are not isolated knowings they're knowings that are created between us right in that kind of what i was talking about before in the sort of musculature and and veins and the 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 all the processes that create the the relational knitting steeping holding generating by by knowings do you mean like the 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 conception of that role or that category that we all share like what is it like where they overlap yeah. or and, and just you know if i say to you um you know what does it mean to be successful or to be relevant yeah right that you have a sense of what that is and you're still trying to figure it out it's partially your experience but it's partially inside the culture and the context that you're in. It has something to do with economy. It has something to do with media. It has something to do with education. It has to do with how you present yourself. It has, right? There's all kinds of things from, from voice to religion to, right? That, that are in that to age to, and we go about our days as though these things are just what is. Okay, but this is not just what is. This is what the has this is what has formed in our collective tide pool of li- of of societal living. And it's not the same for everybody, that's for sure. Right? So what it means to be um uh, you know in the to be a person of color and to do that is a whole different set of assumptions, but they're in relation to the other assumptions, right? So there's, there's, there's this deep, messy, overlapping, intertangling um, set of matrix like assumptions that, that we move within every day. And I'm interested in that because uh, I think it, that it's it's very um, central, very central to the question of what 
what the hell is change? How are we going to live differently? How are we going to be less destructive to each other and our world? And in order to really ask that question, uh, we're going to have to get off the kind of islands of kind of comfortable, familiar description and thinking and into some deep water where these things are actually forming and informed and that's where transformation happens and that's the that's the um the formative world but it takes a lot of integrity to go there and it it takes extreme um kind of acumen and and humility and care and uh and willingness to take a risk to be ostracized, to be misunderstood, to be, um, you know, my, my grandfather was grumpy. He was, he was grumpy and you, you see pictures of him and he's basically pissed off. And the reason he's pissed off is not because he's negative. He's pissed off because he cares. And he's living in a world that is so willing to distraught upon all those delicate interdependencies that produce life and to not care. And so he, he had much more compassion, if you will, um, for the plants and the bacteria and the patterns and the shifting relationships of, of interdependent life at the microbiology and not so micro um, level than he did for the human societies that um, by virtue of some of the same kind of patternings had got themselves into uh, more destructive ecologies of thinking. My father then came in and was kind of curious about, well, what's going on with this? Like, what's happening here? There's this great, um, I mean, my grandfather was a piece of work. He was, he was a piece of work. So my, my grandmother, Beatrice, she was also tough as nails. She loved to smoke cigars. She loved to smoke cigars. That would have been quite a sight back then. Right? Okay, so she they had this dinner party <clears throat> and um and uh, some some uh important people came to dinner and it was all very, you know, proper and British and and so Beatrice didn't smoke her cigar after dinner. And William said, you know, why aren't you smoking your cigar? And she said, well, you know, we have all these guests here. It's okay, I'll just... And you know what he did? He kicked all those people out of the house. He said, you have to leave now because my wife doesn't... It's time for her to have her cigar and she doesn't want to do that in front of you. You can't handle it. We don't really want you here. Go away. Okay? He was offered knighthood and he rejected it. Couldn't smoke cigars at the ceremony. (laughs) Well, he rejected it because he perceived that the, there was no 
aspect of the establishment as he as he saw it that could be trusted with the work that he was doing. Remember, he was working in genetics and it was the turn of the century. It was the, you know, it was right around the time when this work was getting turned into eugenics. It was, it was, you know, they were actually building culture around the idea that some people were um, better than others, more worthy of whatever education, comfort, respect, identity, all these things that we were just talking about, right? When we were, I was saying, what is it to be Sam? Mm. So, he was, he was pretty radical. And, and, you know, I get it. I definitely understand. Um, You know, my father went through it too. Of, the the beauty of life the 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 awe and the um the the depth the rigor the inquiry that has to do with perceiving the way that these incredible relational processes come together and the more you study that the more incredible the more beautiful the more terrible it becomes. Why, why do you say terrible? Well, because it can be terrible. I mean, look at colonialism. Mm-hmm. Look at eugenics. Look at, you know, Jeffrey Epstein. Yeah. So you're saying that, the, the these, these relationships, that these relationships can be, well, everything is in relation to, to something. But sometimes these these the relations between things can just be well terrible, evil, even, and understanding how these relationships can be twisted or how these these negative relationships can be engaged in or created and um, shaped to exist across time is 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 that kind of what you're talking about? I mean, you know, ask the dinosaurs. <laughs> Some things are terrible. And, uh, but to be able to perceive and to work on that perception, to, to devote yourself to that perception and that, that inquiry is, I mean, it, you know, my family's not religious, but I would absolutely say that that is the territory that for us is sacred. And to see that just manipulated and sold and um, so clumsily handled uh, to, to to have it, you know, turned into something that became pragmatic in a world that uh, in a world that is keen to sever those relationships that generate vitality. 
Right. So that pragmatism, right. That pragmatism is incredibly painful when you see it through the lens of the destruction that it's doing to the imaginations of small children, to the care of old stories, to the um, microbiome of your own body, to the um, to the to the indigenous peoples of the world and their their ways of knowing. To right, just look anywhere and you can see what that pragmatism has torn. So. There's a lot of sorrow here and, a lo- and, 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 and fury. And that sorrow and fury is not a criticism of the existing system. It's, um, it's not a lack of compassion for what it is to, you know, live the life of the corporate CEO or the you know, the, the, the kid who just wants to go to school to get a job. It's a, it's a frustration, deep frustration with with the existing patterns and how difficult they are to change, how to engage in that in a way that allows there to be a heightened sense, a heightened sense, let's just say that, a heightened sense. Um, so there's, there's pain. If you want to see and, 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 and frolic and participate in this wonderful, intricate relational process and beauty and the rigor of that. The other side of that is that you are going to become a warrior for it. Warrior in the, the aggressive sense, or like the fighting sense of the word, you know, fighting for in what the, you're, yeah, yeah, both. In the, <laughs> yeah, in the sense of advocating. Yeah. Right? So my father advocated. I mean, that's a stupid word because it sounds like the legal system. But he stuck up for, okay, that's a little more raw. Let's say that. He, he stuck up for the complexity and the deep systemic cybernetic processes that, that addicts were dealing with, that schizophrenics were caught within that criminals, you know, that those people who the existing system has basically destroyed. And he, he said, no, 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 you know, it's not, it's not the crime. The crime is not the thing. It's the context in which that, that behavior made sense. Right? It's not it's not the pathology of this thing you want to call schizophrenia. That's not what we're talking about here. What we're talking about are the the deep systemics of communication that the human soul tries to find a way within. And when they're in conflict and, and contradiction and pain, where they go. 
and also the complex uh, the, the contexts in which those things arise like um, exactly. like the fact you know the more and more we learn about human nature and you know the mind psychology genetics it's less and less to do with how we are but the like where we grow up you know it's nature's versus nurture it turns out that nurture plays you know quite a tremendous role in how we turn out and what we express um you know crime is linked to the economic uh conditions in, in which you grow up the 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 social lives that you live you know the families um it's really quite sad that there's this like what's dominant in a lot of uh you know contemporary discussion is this idea that everyone is responsible for who they are and what they do and they are like they're solely responsible for it and that anything any transgression or you know someone's poor it's their fault it's because they don't work hard enough or it's because of blah 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 it's just um it's just it's it's very sad and it's counterproductive and this this atomistic individualism is and you know it's i guess what you was when you're speaking about your grandfather um you know these ideas were even more rooted in like it had a stronger hold in um what i would say is culture i mean i wasn't there but i'm, I'm, I'm assuming like this transcendent anthropocentrism that we are like above nature that we are uh, that we have somehow ascended beyond, you know, the, the, the soil and that we are some special creature that doesn't need to worry about where we are embedded, that the nature is there to be exploited for our ends. I think it all feeds in. I think it's all part of the same story. I think so too. Um, yeah, I think so too. And, and it's, um, it's not very rigorous. It's a kind of lazy thinking. Um, and so, you know, it's, there's a sort of like, okay, so it's a lot easier to think about how a machine works because a machine works and this does that, and that does this, and there's a, a mechanistic clarity to it. But in life, the way life works, it's not got that. It's compensatory. It's relational. It's the, you know, the, the way in which these things happen. This is, this is kind of what I was saying about the dangers of the familiar and, and the frustration with that pragmatism that comes from thinking that life is like a machine and not even a very good machine. You know, it's, it's not, it's not a, it's not a, AI learning program we're thinking of, my God, it's something like a, you know, 1920s pickup truck engine. Like you do this and you do that and you do this and you do that and together we'll do this thing together. No, no, that's not how life is. And, and so this is this frustration. And, and I really, I, I share that. When I was a, you know, a, a youngster in the 80s, I was a punk rocker. And um, what I liked about the punk rock scene was the anger at the existing system, at the, at the, the way the humans are being, um, you know. Rock and roll did the same thing. Okay, so the sentiment and, and, lives on. Yeah, and 
you know, hip hop does it too. Uh, so, yeah, yeah. This, this talk of I, rigor is like it's it's a when I think of rigor, I think of sanit- uh, sanitation. I think of you know clean. I think of you know m- machines in a way. And it's funny to to use that that term when we're talking about something that's you know that's inherently messy and chaotic and you know. Uh, we do, where we are embedded with an uncertainty. We don't know, like, so I guess what I'm thinking is like, how can we be rigorous when engaging with complexity and uncertainty? Like, where does the rigor come in? Ah, because okay, it, so it I think necessary. of rigor, yeah. What, what rigor means to me in this sense is the, um, the hard work. It means the hard work. It means the willingness to look from to keep looking from different perspectives, to keep going deeper, to keep going further, to keep, to, 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 to not shy away from the hard work of pushing your capacity for imagining and for perceiving and for, you know, to find more details, to go deeper, to go wider, to go longer, to go, to go further into the, the, a heightened attention. So for me, the rigor is the difference between, you know, you read one, you know, kind of a pop psych article on schizophrenia, or you are going to, you know, completely dive into, uh, you know, interviewing and working with 150 different families who have had schizophrenia in their world somewhere. Um, It's the difference between saying that person is an alcoholic and looking at how their, all the different relational processes of their life from their, you know, from their, their, like you said, epigenetics into their marriages, their childhood experiences, their notions of self, the people they're in relationship, the culture they're within, the way, right? It's, it's, it's doing the hard work. It's not stopping at the easy tag, the easy, I'm thinking of kind of like, you know, the, the iceberg, Thing. When you see this little tip of the iceberg, you're like, oh, there it is. And that's not it. It's this whole thing that's under it. But that takes work. It takes effort. It takes, and, and it's, it's, it's not about finding or exhausting all those possibilities. It's about entering that sea of possibilities and never stopping. Mm. Right? And you're not looking for a plateau. You're not looking for an end point. The, the, and the pragmatism that you're that, that you're critical of is is taking that tip of the iceberg and then applying it without actually understanding what it what it really is and what it belongs to and and how it operates. It's just seeing something useful and then just exploiting it and putting it into the world without an understanding of what what's going on and what the implications of that could be. I mean, so putting someone in jail, for example, for a crime is a perfect example. Yeah. What what does that actually do for the changing of the behavior or the changing of the circumstances that in which that behavior was generated? It does nothing. In fact, probably what it will do is add to the sense of fractured and and 
you know, tormented identity. They created it in the first place. In other words, it probably just makes better criminals. So it's the thing of if you are sloppy, and it's funny because when I was growing up, there were very few things that that I would get in trouble for. Um, Because uh, that's a different story. But, But one of the things that was highly discouraged in our house was sloppy thinking. That was like, you know, the thing you did not want to do. So you're at the breakfast table, you're five years old, you're talking about your new bicycle, you're watching out for the sloppy thinking, even at that level. So I, I want to share that with you because I think that it, you know, you, you ask like, what is this heritage of thinking? What's going on here? What's in here? And, and you know, in a sense, that really points to it because it's, it's, I mean, I've said this before, it's not a body of, 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 um, it's not a body of work. It's a way of engaging with the world. It's a way of being. Yeah, that's right. And the body of work is a, is a, is, is the just artifacts. Sort of what, yeah. Yeah. And, and the and real value really, is in, is in the being. And it's ongoing. It's never stopping. It's, it's about every circumstance holding that rigor. Mm. which could be kind of exhausting if you weren't used to it but the alternative is also exhausting right you're just generating all kinds of mess everywhere that creates all kinds of pain and then you think oh and now we have to solve this problem and antithetical to life you know like that's that's where we are now we are on the precipice you know to quote the, the the book that i'm reading at the moment it's about the existential threats that we are faced with and that we are truly on the precipice of potential, you know, destruction of not only our species, but, you know, we've already seen that many have been uh, removed from this planet and that if we do not change how we are operating in our homes, in our communities, and they all trickle up to the global phenomena that we are, you know, that we are pressed against, then um, things will not go well. That's um, right. And unfortunately, I have to say that I think that that requires an incredible sense of humor. It requires <laughs> a lot of awe and beauty. I mean, willingness to fall on your knees before the beauty of life. It requires, it requires, the, it requires being pissed off. It requires being heartbroken. Right. I think and, we, and a lot of people have these feelings, but there's a, they don't know how to channel them. Like we were seeing a lot of rebellion, right? But I see revolution as rebellion channeled. You know, there's, we have all this act, we have all this energy that's kind of, you know, like the, the seas are turbulent, but there's no channels for, for which it can throw, uh, flow through and do work in, at least not yet, that, that, that I've seen. Um, that I think the, the, the energy is there. The people are willing to make changes or to, 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 to fight for something, but the mm-hmm. avenue through which, or like the actions that need to, that need to take place in their own homes, like it's not maybe spelled out or the leadership hasn't, not enough leaders have cropped up in local communities to try to spearhead this local challenge, uh, this local change. I'm not sure, but I know that the energy is there. It's palpable. 
particularly in, in, you know, July or August of 2020, like <laughs> it has never been so, it's incredible just to feel this throughout, throughout screens. Um, we're there. We, we're time. there. Yeah. yeah. And, and I think that's really why I wanted to kind of address this with you at this level that we're talking today, because um, channels for activism are going to come out of changes in the minutia of our relationships with ourselves and each other and the world. They're not going to come out of cultural structure change. So, I mean, this is, it's, it's, it's a terrible time for a pandemic when we need to be coming together and like speaking in person and, you know, there's nothing like, it's quite an experience when you're in a group of people and you're all vibing with one another. You could, you could be in a church or a concert or somewhere else. I've never had that experience digitally, but we need that coming together and the, the synchronization and the connectedness that comes with those sorts of environments to really catalyze the internal change. We don't change ourselves, we change each other. Exactly. And and that's one of the that's where we where I was saying in the beginning that your you know your your thoughts are kind of not your own. What we're doing what the way in which this system is created is not is not individualized. It's it's collectively um it's it's in the it's in the aggregate. It's yeah. in the aggregate. And um how we do a deep dive into that. So I think the pandemic is really interesting because it's actually a very difficult to change existing patterns. And so that's what one thing that the pandemic has done. Uh, I've had several discussions with people recently where they can't quite articulate the way in which they are feeling differently about the world. But something's different. And it's, I, my theory is a little bit that it has to do with this changed relationship to time. And that time was actually being kind of demarcated by changing space and, and being with different people and this kind of um, movement. But, but when we got into a more monotonous um, set of scenery, i.e. our own homes, um, day after day after day after month after week after that, that uh, the, the time started to change shape. But when time changes shape, everything changes. All relationships move through time. Mm. So, so there has been deep change, but no one really knows what it is yet. And there is no description of it that matches something we knew in the past. And this is really important because remember we were talking in the beginning about words and about coming up with new words so that you don't bring along things that you had before. So this, these shiftings that, that were, I think are grumbling that you're referring to that we know are here, that there's something different. I mean, even in people who are, you know, out there fighting for their, their freedom to, you know, to be. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So, so again, it's, it's about this, this 
deep change being as personal as it is global. It's, it's about your family and it's about the forest. It's about your, your, the, 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 the words, the tone, the way of expressing and, and what, and what it is that we're saying, you know, the, the eagerness to say and to describe what we're experiencing. What do you think that's about? Why do we need to describe what we're experiencing? Mm, I think it's a, like we, 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 it comes down to a relation. Like we need to relate to others. Like we define ourselves in relation to who we are, to everything else. And that being seen, being felt, like seeing that whatever I'm experiencing in this body, uh, in this world is, um, it reverberates in others. You know, it's, it resonates. Like it's the same, it's, you know, you could say it's the same chord played on a different guitar. And like, if that's, if they're being played in unison, like you can, you can feel the the sound of the greater chorus. You know, you can, there's something beautiful to that feeling. Um, Mm. I would say that's why we, we, we seek it out. It's also just um, being in tune with one, with one another is, you know, it's, it's adaptive, right? Like the ability to, to work with one another and to understand uh, their motivations and uh, you know, the other person's um, like what they might do or what they, what they're, what they're seeking or, and all, all of that. Um, it, it helps us get things done. But I think what's, that's, that's kind of a, um, instrument instrumentalizing this the the deep feeling that i think um i think it it does away with a lot of the the soul that comes with it let's say like it's it's one of the wonderful things about being human that we are capable of doing all these wonderful things but we are also capable of such deep experience exactly so isn't it interesting the kinds of, I mean, you, you have a podcast. This is what you're doing. You're making conversation. So that making a space for conversation for, for a, uh, a kind of, you know, groping around the edges of where we are and what we're going through and how we're changing and who, who we're going to be. And, you know, what does it feel like and how would you describe it? And, and, and that process allows us to live into it. And it, that, that, that thing, you know, where there was some story floating around a few years ago that it was kind of interesting that, that the color blue wasn't described for a long, long time. It blew my mind that they, right. like the Greeks would describe, you know, the ocean is wine colored, right? And that, yeah, that, that, that's how they, I mean, I could be wrong there, but like they, we didn't have this, this concept of blue. It was a shade of something else. It was green. It was red. It was all sorts of things. I mean, obviously blue was there. It's not like blue turned up when we got the word. Mm. Makes right? you think but, about what, but, what, what else is missing. Like what exists that we haven't slapped labels onto. Exactly. And this is the issue with using existing language to go into new processes of perception. And why it's so important to be extremely careful 
what baggage you bring along. Hmm. I think we need to get rid of the word socialism and capitalism, but those words, because I think... <laughs> I've got a list about this long I'm by sure. the leader. I am sure. <laughs> I am sure. But, but this, is, um, this is kind of at the core, because... how we share experience is how we live and our language are, you know, but, but let's not forget there are other kinds of language besides words, right? So there's art, there's music, there's just nonverbal communication, there's touch, there's um, dance, there's gesture, there's, uh, there's all kinds of ways in which we are also describing our world. And, um, and, and, you know, Marshall McLuhan talked about the medium being the message. Uh, and it's something to really pay attention to right now. When we're in this moment that I think we've both identified as being a moment of pretty critical change. Like this is kind of the, we either pull this off or we don't kind of thing. And it's probably within our lifetimes. Certainly within yours, right? So the, um, the, the urgency that I feel is I think a similar urgency to that which my grandfather and father felt which is to be extremely careful with the way that we are addressing our, our children, each other, um, you know, food, like everything. Yeah, it's, it's funny. Like we need to be so careful and yet we need to be so radical. Like the, the times call for radical change. So this idea of care with the need to transform perhaps so quickly, at least that's what, that's the way it seems to me is like, uh, it makes one cautious or, you know, perhaps even scared, you know, you don't want to light a, you don't want to be the spark that results in the forest fire rather than the, you know, the, the campfire to keep your, yourself and your family warm. The most dangerous thing right now is to keep things as they are. Yeah, that's true. So that's very true. The, yeah. So I think the the those two things of being careful and being radical simultaneously. It is radical to be careful. It's radical to stand to the side of pragmatism and efficiency and say those are n- neither pragmatic nor are they efficient. Efficiency is the least efficient thing we could do right now. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's right? something that we're that we're learning with these with our economies, right? That um, because we've lived, we live in these internet, interconnected worlds, and if a crisis does arise, then um, what may have been efficient for for a decade, if that suddenly stops, if it grounds to a if it grinds to a halt because of you know one perhaps you know severe perturbation to the system, then. <laughs> that system's useless. Like the, the our, economic, our economic systems are not robust. They are not good enough that if we sacrifice 
efficiency in the short run, we maximize, I don't even like, I don't like using the term maximize, but we survive across time. You know, we are robust. I mean, you want to know what's efficient? Nursing a baby is efficient. Okay. That's efficiency that is emotional. It's uh, relational. It's intergenerational. It's certainly got, you know, nutrition, but it's also got um, all kinds of communication and signaling and, and right. That's efficiency. Mm. Also, okay, um, childcare, like the, I don't like the, it doesn't strike me as right that we just have these centers where we send children off to be, you know, quasi raised because parents have to work. Like that doesn't seem efficient. I just, it's on that nurturing point. It's like a. Right. It's a, it's allows for the efficiency of the economy, but it disrupts the efficiency of intergenerational learning and nourishing that part of the, that it, well, the medium is the message. Okay. So the, the, what the, what are the children learning at in daycare center? They're learning that it's that they are coming into a world in which relationships don't matter as much as money. Where care is less important than, than money. And, you know, no matter how darling that child care center is, there's no getting around that. And it's not really, you know, a wonder that we have so many of our elders that are also in care centers. So somehow, you know, there's been um, a deep disruption. But this is exactly the sort of thing. Because, you know, for a lot of people, this would be a really insulting thing to say. Right. And, and how, how, can, how else can they live except for to do this? And that's the, and, it's this challenge, you know, we, we are forced to exist in these, you know, the society. It's the reason why that, why there's so much angst, you know, like the, the avenues for action that we have, like the opportunities that we're afforded are a lot more restricted than, you know, some might like us to think, you know, I need to sacrifice a certain amount of my time for work. Uh, we must, we must all do certain things in order to just survive. And it really limits the the freedom we have or the, the ability to do what I think is the ability to do what we kind of have evolved to do. And I don't mean right. that as like a deterministic, uh, you know, we are moving in this direction, but it's like we have evolved our body is the result of you know, millions and millions of years of evolution. And that if we wish to be happy, there are just some things that we can't not do. Like we, we must spend time with people. We shouldn't be in offices without light working for eight to 10 hours. Uh, we've got to be outside and playing. We've got to be in the sunshine, but the economic imperative kind of subdues or silences those base needs. Um, and I think, I think a lot of us are suffering because of that. A lot of us are depressed or anxious or detached because it's either fit into this cog, uh, be a cog that fits into this greater machine and do what needs to be, what we say, what, what the culture says needs to be done or 
well, that's it. You don't really have any other options. What, what is happiness? Like what, why have we pulled that out as a thing thing? And I think what we're trying to talk about is life. I think we're trying to find that place where it's possible to feel the vibrancy of being alive together. But I really don't see that as being separate from, um, like I said, from, from sorrow, from remorse, from confusion, from humility, from, from fury, from uh, care, from tenderness, from sensual exploration. Right. So, so it's really interesting to me how our, it's like there's another tone. Okay. This is the blue. We don't have the word for of, of vitality. I, I remember reading a long time ago, I think it was Thich Nhat Hanh was writing about anger. And he was saying that, uh, I mean, it was a long time ago. I read this. So if I, if there's any Thich Nhat Hanh fans out there that I get this wrong with, I apologize. This is what I understood of it. Uh, that because we have so few ways of describing emotion, often when there's something that I think he referred to as like a lightning bolt, when you feel the strength of a lightning bolt, we don't know what else to call it but anger. And so because we call it anger, we live into it with anger. We give it the clothing of anger, the tonality, the, the description, the, we presume it to be anger. But it's really just a strong feeling. Anger has negative connotations, but it doesn't always, like the feeling of aggression, I think, is positive in many ways we tend to just slap that anger label onto it, onto it. So, so I think that's important because in order to kind of move through some of what we've got to move through right now, we're going to need some strength. And whether that strength looks like anger or beauty or humor or, you know, all of those things combined in some you know, kind of murky broth of something. We don't know yet. We don't have a word for that yet. But it would be the kind of, you know, the way that in dreams these things come together and you can't describe them. And how was it a good dream? Like, well, I don't know if it was a good dream or a bad dream or a strong, like it was just a potent dream. It's a kind of potency. Maybe that's what, what I'm trying to talk about is a, 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 a potency. And I think we need that. It, it needs to, st- we have to, you know, be stirred, be moved, be, but that's not about dwelling or, or, you know, kind of indulging in remorse or anger or bitterness or, you know, all of these kind of categories of things. That's not what I'm speaking about. They are all a reflection of the past, whereas what we need to do is look to the future and think about the world in which we want to live 
and then channel our energies to try to bring that world about. But it's easier to shoot. It's easier to uh, avoid bad things than to seek out the good. And that's where our efforts should be put towards. Like it's really, you know, it's a lot easier to, yeah, I think most progress is about not doing things right, but doing things less wrong. Um, and I think that's where we need to be going, what we need to be doing now, because we know a lot about what is what we should not be doing, you know, to our rainforests, to each other. Uh, you know, the list is, is, is huge, but what should we be striving for? Like what is the ethic of life that um, we should be aspiring towards? Uh, what does it look like? What does a better world what does the best world look like? What does this, you know, fictitious utopia look like? I don't think we'll ever answer because it's this branching structure that continues that, that never ideally never ends, but we just need to know where not to like, we need to focus on where not to go and kind of engage with the world with humility. Like that's the focus. Like that's like one of the, our core values or needs to be one of the core values for not just this century, but the, you know, hopefully millions to come because like the nature of complex systems is that we will never know. Like they're irreducible. They're irreducible. That we need to play from a space of of, of not knowing and of openness because we will not know what will happen. But yeah, I just this this idea of humility just keeps it's it's, it's this value. It's this idea that I I think it's just so important because like one of the reasons why we've gotten into this mess is because as a species, we have just lacked humility. Like we are so wonderful in so many ways, but we are just, we have, we have such shortcomings. Um, and I think we're waking up to that. We've gone from like, we've put man on the moon. We can now we've, you know, we've mapped the genome. Uh, we've done, you know, look at humanity, like look at all these animals. We put them in cages, but like we are them. We're just like this offshoot of the tree of life. And our actions right now are causing it to, to wither. Humility is, I think, that probably the most important thing that we can have right now because it's, it's, it shows, I'm, I'm thinking of, here, can I share screen for a second? Yeah, 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 please. Okay, let me see. Oh, you have to enable me. Oh, yep. Yeah. We need a word for these for these uh, Zoom dances that we all engage in, you know. Yeah. Oh wait, that's okay. my screen. That's yours. Oh, nice. Okay. Look at my world. Okay, this is what I wanted to share with you. So this is from this article that my father wrote as a chapter in Steps to an Ecology of Mind called Cybernetics of Self. It's about addiction, sort of, mostly, but it's also about change. And I wanted to, let me, can I just read these paragraphs please, to you? Please, just please. A second, okay. So I, I just want to say that where we're going is actually to the end of this. He says, the present essay is based upon ideas, which are perhaps all of them familiar either to psychiatrists who have had dealings with alcoholics or philosophers who've thought about the implications of cybernetics and systems theory. The only novelty which can be claimed for the thesis here offered derives from treating these ideas seriously as premises of argument from the bringing together of commonplace ideas from two, two separate fields of thought. 
In its first conception, this essay was planned to be a systems theoretic study of alcoholic addiction, in which I would use data from the publications of Alcoholics Anonymous, which has the only, this is written in 1971, which has the only outstanding record for success in dealing with alcoholics. It soon became evident, however, that the religious views and the organizational structure of AA presented points of great interest to systems theory, and that the correct scope of my study should not only include the premises of alcoholism, but also the premises of AA, system of treating it, and the premises of the AA organization. My debt to AA will be evident throughout. Also, I hope my respect for that organization and especially for the extraordinary wisdom of its co-founders, Bill W. and Dr. Bob. Okay. Now, in addition, I have to acknowledge a debt to a small sample of alcoholic patients with whom I worked intensively for about two years in 1949 to 1952 in the Veterans Administration Hospital, Palo Alto, California. These men, it should be mentioned, carried other diagnoses, mostly of schizophrenia, in addition to the pains of alcoholism. Several were members of AA, and this is the most important sentence of the entire article for me. I fear that I helped them not at all. So the reason I wanted to bring this in, Sam, is because I want to show through this couple of paragraphs here a combination of rigor, intellect, inquiry, tenderness, sensitivity, and humility. This sentence that says, I fear that I helped them not at all, says so many things. It says, I wanted to help them. Okay, I cared. You don't fear that you didn't help someone if it didn't matter to you. Right? It also says the complexity is so big that I don't know. I do not know. And it says one other thing that I think is really important, which is so counterindicated to our entire cultural process, which is why the hell should you care about something you can't do anything about? Okay. And what he's saying here is, I fear I helped them not at all. It, it's, it's absolutely everything is in there about the rigor, about the humility, and about what it is to actually change the whole course of relational process by caring about something that you... Fuck pragmatism. That's not the point, Right? There's something so much deeper than the practicality of what could have been done, the cause and effect of it, the, the mechanistics of it, the, the to, you know, I have a lot of kids. I bring kids in this world. I fear 
that I help them not at all. If I hold that, the integrity and the care, the the um, the effort that I show up with is entirely of a different nature. Maybe I can do something, maybe I can't, but by God, I'm going to try. I think right, and it isn't, yeah. Sorry, keep on. Keep no, on. just, just, I just, I just want to point to that as being something, uh, a kind of a, a, a flag. It's for me, that's a kind of a flag of like what it looks like to engage in complexity, to tend to the pain, and to know you don't know, but to have it matter completely. There's no deliverable. There's no goal. There's no. You just fear you help them not at all. And that is, I think, for me, that's what integrity and sensitivity and care and rigor look like when they're put together. The, this idea of wanting to help or just seeing things unfold, particularly through our screens, I feel like a lot of people are apathetic or they feel detached. They feel that they actually can't influence anything. But I guess what is heartening from you know, aspects of this discussion, but this, this worldview, let's say, is that everything that we do matters. It doesn't matter who you are, where you are, how small that action is. Everything that you do matters. And, you know, I can think of moments in my life where someone has just done something very small, you know, just a little comment that they probably forgot about 10 minutes later or uh, an action or just something that I had, you know, I'd seen walking down the street that had, that has, it's, they've left marks on me, you know, that, that, I, that I can look back on uh, fondly or not so fondly. Um, but normally it's the good things that I tend to remember, you know, just the, the, the little sparkles. Um, so I think pushing that message in a way is something that we need to, do more or it's this idea that we actually do have a voice or that we do have, you know, a string to pull that changes how the entire structure ripples. It changes everything because, um, a community of people who share a sense of awe of each other's complexity and I unten- sorry the word sonder just because it's you know speaking of new words the word sonder is uh the feeling that you get when you realize that the person that you're speaking to or walking past on the street has this has a life as detailed and as complex as the one that you're leading. And it's a realization of the, of the complexity of the person that they are this, you know, entire universe in of themselves. So just for, you know, the sake of new words, I just thought I'd, I'd bring that up. That's a nice one. I Sonder. like it. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's uh, yeah. beautiful. Sorry for interjecting there. No, no, but, but, but that, that community is capable of something very different than a community who does not have that sense. 
of each other's complexity. To, to take the time and the effort, uh, the, the, the stretch to perceive that and to engage, to be in, humil- in humility with it is to um, live in a very different way. You know, if, if children were perceived in their complexity, they would be treated very differently. Um, so it's, it, you know, it changes all sorts of notions of control, of manipulation, of, um, of, of what it means to coexist. So, you know, one of the things that, that I am really, I'm really sad about right now is the way in which I am perceiving all of these wonderful people who want to do good for the future of mankind and humanity and the planet. And the way in which that community of people is in competition with each other. It's a problem. It's a problem. Why do you think there is this competition? At what, what level of why? Like, what am I seeing? Or Well, or, I, I think, I, yeah, well, yeah, what, what are you seeing? But, and why do you think there's this, um, I guess, perhaps zero-sum thinking or, you know, that someone else's success detracts from my own? Um, I think that might be a, an edge to this. Um, why do you think that's, it could just be, you know, human nature in, in a way. Um, but I'm, I'm curious to hear your take. I mean, I, I think it's because we are in a system that, um, that has grooved us into those patterns. You know, we've been in third grade classrooms where the person who was at the top of the class got the star. We were, you know, we, they had a competition in Sweden a few years ago for it was, I think it was a $5 million prize for the person who could come up with the idea of the most collaborative governance model. Think about that for a minute. (laughs) (laughs) One person for the collaborative governance model. So all these people who could have been collaborating on the idea were in competition with each other. So it has to do with reward. That's dramatic. That's ironic. Oh, it's profound. Yeah. But it says everything. Yeah. You know, how many, whatever, how many likes you have, how much traction you have, how much, you know, do your ideas matter? Are you relevant? Um, And somehow this has, uh, you know, and it makes people steal ideas. It makes people... um, undermine each other and you know we don't have time for that right now we just don't have time and there's this this it's in the culture it has to do with a, a culture that that is does strange things with ambition what is ambition what do we mean by ambition is it possible to be both a complexity perceiver and also be ambitious? How does ambition relate to humility? 
I think the most ambitious tend to be the most humble. Do you think? I think so. Well, perhaps those that have achieved the most tend to be the most humble, but perhaps it was, it was the humility that drove them to achieving their ambitions. Perhaps they didn't have those ambitions in the first place, but I think that some, I think that those that, I I think humility is necessary for the ambitious to succeed, let's say. So that there might be different ways. I'm not sure. I mean, I, my feeling is that when I start to see people who want to get ahead in the, you know, in the change maker complexity world, I immediately think, ooh, what kind of relationships are you building? To me, that ambition strikes as a a kind of anti-relational. It's sort of the opposite of what kind of, you know, the, the vitality that comes out of the soil doesn't come because the the bacteria were extra ambitious. It comes out of the relationships mm. that were possible. Yeah, what we do need to see is like we've got all these disparate organizations and NGOs and charities that are all kind of working at once but not in concert. And what I think we need is a uh, the, the thread of culture to weave all these things together under through one framework or one something to enable all of these things to operate at once in unison rather than in cooperation because um there's a lot of amazing work that has been done and that people are doing and rather than starting something new what we need to do is thread them together and actually give them the resources that they need and share those learnings or share, share, like enable them to share what they've learned with each other. So they don't think, oh, these people are going to replace us, but we can thrive together. I, I, I think so. And I, I think it, I think it would actually change everybody's work phenomenally and, and really bring that depth that we're talking about. Something that's been in my mind since before this conversation, but especially during it is the need for cultural change. Cultural change will lead to everything else. And I don't think there's anything that's harder to do. Like how do we change the way people, it's, it's literally, we're technically and quite literally, you know, changing the software of people. Like culture is the, 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 the programming of individuals and how they interrelate with you know, each other, but also the wider world. I mean, that's why we are, capable of doing what we are capable of. Like if I was born, you know, a hundred thousand years ago, I would not be doing what I'm doing right now. Like I'm basically have the same body as someone who might've had a hundred thousand years ago, but I'm a very different person. And that's all because of culture. So the question of how do we tweak or nudge culture, culture in a way quickly, um, in order to make these sort of changes is, um, is a, it's, it's a tough question. It's tough and it, 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 it's dangerous. It's a dangerous question <laughs> because, I mean, I think there's a real, um, you know, I'm just going to go back to what I keep saying. It's about, it's about being in awe and in tenderness and in humility and in, you know, that, that, that frustration that my grandfather felt. Because if, if you ask the question, how can we change culture? That's a very 
you know, watch out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, watch out I, for that question because the thinking that you could start to come up with to, in response to that question becomes manipulation, becomes hubris, becomes um, becomes something very different than I fear I helped them not at all. Mm which actually changes culture, right? The actual change of culture for me happens at the level of what, I mean, in the direction that you hope to change it, right? Because that's the other thing is that you have an idea in mind of which direction is the right direction. How the hell do we know? Yeah, well, that's the thing. I don't even know, but I just know that the change is necessary, that these nudges are necessary and that we have been placed in, we, we now have this role of, custodian or steward i don't i'm also curious to know what your thoughts are on on that wording around the role that we are as that humanity is going to play on earth like should we think of ourselves as as the custodians of the planet or as you know gardeners i don't want a custodian over my complex system that doesn't feel very sexy you know, doesn't yeah. feel very life. It doesn't feel very mutual. I mean, you know, mm-hmm. I, I think what's important about the idea of custodianship is the idea of care, that it matters. But what's dangerous about the idea of custodian, custodianship is that there's this idea of... Um, Authority? Can we be co-custodians? I'd say so. I, you know, I just, I guess I'm, I'm, I'm really allergic to the notions of manipulation mm. and things that lead to manipulation. And so <clears throat> I would never want someone to be a custodian of me or a steward of me. But this is my personal taste. A lot of people like that idea. Um, but I don't, for me, it just feels like, no, I, you know, I, I want to be in relationships that are unpredictable and alive. And, you know, that, that somehow that kind of engagement of kind of having a prescription of what's good for me. I don't want, I don't want someone to have a prescription of what's good for me. Yeah, I, I, I don't mean in that yeah. sense. It's more just that we have to care for the planet because we, our actions have such, can have such dramatic consequences that we need to, you know, perhaps the, 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 the idea of gardener is a better way of putting it. Like we, we must tend to earth in a way that enables that it flourishes, that, you know, the biodiversity increases and that, that life increases. But I'm, for better or for worse, we've now been placed we've been forced into this position or perhaps what we could do is radically change our political systems or the way we you know our cultures and just like cut off aspects of earth and just leave them and just say we're not allowed to touch them i mean i you know i think for me i would say again, that you can't expect people to tend to the earth who can't tend to each other. This isn't like a, a, a category or a professional thing. This has to do with a complete way of seeing life. 
And I think that's where we keep getting into trouble is compartmentalizing the response as being it's ecological, it's psychological, where the family therapists that I work with largely have absolutely no interest whatsoever in ecology. The ecologists that I work with have virtually no interest whatsoever in family therapy. Both the family therapists and the ecologists have almost no interest whatsoever in, in economy. And what it is to have a, you know, a, 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 or education, right? So, so somehow we have made these compartmentalizations and then we create these kind of channels of care that come with prescriptive expertise. And I'm, I'm concerned about that. Um, and to go beyond that is actually to go into this liminal space where what you were talking about changing isn't, isn't, isn't in the education system. It isn't in, it isn't in the thing we know of as culture. It isn't in the thing we know of as, as economy. It's in this liminal place. It's blurry. It's that dream you don't have words for. But tending there requires the kind of humility that I think we've been talking about. It requires extreme effort, infinite inquiry, absolute uh, dedication with absolutely no promise that anything is going to happen whatsoever. And that you won't see it. It won't be recognized. You won't get famous for it. No one's going to remember who did it. It doesn't matter. You do it anyway. And, and that to me is what, what, what it looks like. Um, and I think there's something really important about the thanklessness of that. And the, the, the absolute lack of reward coming from anywhere besides the depth of the um, the depth of showing up in each moment, in each relationship, all day, every day. To explore language, to explore perception, to explore different ways of of engaging with that kid that is that you is being really disrespectful, or that dog that keeps chewing the carpet, or that way of seeing the news, or the politician, or what happened in Beirut, or the forty percent of people in the states who can't pay rent next month. Like what it you know it's it's. It's across and through all of that simultaneously. And is, is it a tall order? Oh, yeah. It's a super tall order. But I, I feel a certain amount of inspiration and um, a blurry, unmitigated potential in that, that sense of impossibility. Why should we do this? Because it's impossible. And everything else is impossible. So we do it. And for me, that's so much better than thinking it's my duty, it's how I'd be a good person, I'm going to get thanked for it, I'm going to get famous for it, I'm going to get likes for it, I'm going to get paid for it, I'm going to get, right? And... 
I'm, everyone's going to think I'm so clever. Clever. We just, we just got to like 10, we got to do life now. Forget about clever. <laughs> you know, book sales. What if we don't need book sales? We need to, we need to go into the, the thick depths of memory and history and, and make space for um, just make space for things to rearrange without getting to say how they rearrange. Let the relationships rearrange themselves because they will anyway. Mm. So for those listening who would like to learn more or dive into these ideas or to begin to engage with the world in such a way, um, what could they read or listen to or uh, what guidance would you give? Like how could people start living like this tomorrow? And I know it's a silly question. There's no one pill that'll fix it all. No Uh, way. (laughs) But do you have any uh, recommendations? I mean, I think, for me, there's, there's um, just one easy thing is that when you, when you come into some kind of situation that needs to change according to you, just ask the question, in what ways have all the participants of this situation learned to be in their world so that this makes sense to them. Instead of thinking, this is a problem, we need to fix the problem. Stretch that perception into that other question. How is this situation a consequence of these different entities learning to be in their world? And just that will help a lot. Yeah, that's a great political prescription. <laughs> you know, just thinking of the Democrats and the Republicans and everyone, you know, just judging each other based on their worldviews and how they act and see within the world, which, you know, probably makes perfect sense to them in their own position. Right. Yeah. Yeah, that's a great piece of advice. Well, um, I think uh, we'll, we'll wrap up there. Um, Thank you, Nora, uh, for taking the time and uh, for such a wonderful conversation. It, um, it's my first conversation of this type in a way because I had a whole list of questions, but that wasn't the feel I got from the conversation. I thought it was just good. <laughs> you know, like, it's just, let's just talk. And I'm really happy with, uh, with it. Thank you for being um, so open and, um, yeah, just open and I'd say you know, perhaps raw. Mm. Thank you, Sam. It was a pleasure.